Culture Affidavit, episode 149, The Night They Saved Christmas. Hello and welcome to episode 149 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panarese, and it's time for yet another holiday episode. Now, last year I talked about PBS Christmas shows in an effort to, I don't know, class things up around here. This year I'm doing what I, well, usually do, and that's dive back into the past for a look at something that I saw as a kid, and I think a number of people of my age at least have some inkling of a memory of, even if it's not an established classic, and that is the 1984 TV movie, The Night They Saved Christmas. Starring Jacqueline Smith, this ran in December of 1984, it was rerun a couple of times before fading from the airwaves unlike some of the cartoon specials that were run almost in perpetuity, and in some cases still are. I will say it's not hard to find, though. It did make its way onto cable as part of ABC Family and or whatever it's freeform now, I think. Uh, They're like 25 days of Christmas, and you can stream it on Tubi, believe it or not, um, as, as well as other places. So, I hadn't seen it since 1984. Now, I didn't watch it on TV when it came out. I was never really able to stay up past 8 o'clock on a school night back then. And I was in the second grade when this came out in 1984. But The Night They Saved Christmas, um, it originally aired on December 13th, 1984. That was a Thursday night. And even though, like I said, I remember I heard about the movie being on because the title, like, The Night They Saved Christmas... It's like really intriguing when you're seven and you've been watching Star Wars and like action things and stuff like that and G.I. Joe cartoons. But my parent, even my parents like wanted to let me stay up um, or would have let me stay up to watch something like this. They wouldn't have let me stay up this particular night because my mom was more than likely watching Magnum P.I. So I was shuffled off to bed. But I did see it shortly afterward. For some reason, I have a memory of watching it in school. Like somebody brought in a tape of it and the teacher was like, well, I need to shut you up for an hour and a half or something. And, you know, they 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 did that a lot. Although I might be confusing this with the best Christmas pageant ever because I do remember watching that in uh, in school when the teacher would roll in the TV VCR cart. And I might have had my parents tape it. I, I don't honestly don't remember But I did see it back in 1984, and I remember liking it. Honestly, can't tell you. It's been 40 years, and usually I have a good memory for these things, but it's hazy. I just remember seeing it at some point. But this has been on my topics to cover list for years, and recently a friend of mine posted to Facebook that she was watching it. She says it's her favorite Christmas movie of all time. So I decided to see if I could find it, and like I said, it wasn't hard. I found it on Tubi. It is on YouTube and in various uh, uploads and things like that. Uh, Tubi runs ads in the middle of it, so I kind of got the version of uh, some sort of version of watching it on television. Although I will say uh, a 
couple episodes ago, Mike, Mike Bailey and I were talking about the big chill and he mentioned that on Tubi, they put ads in the weirdest places and he's right. And it's even stranger when you have a TV movie that has ad breaks built into it. And the, the Tubi algorithm, because Tubi, it's just an algorithm dropping ads in there. So nobody manually inserted them just where the ads would go. So, um, <laughs> so you could, there are sp- certain points where certain scenes fade and sh- they should have gone to commercial, but they didn't. So it's kind of like watching basic cable in the 1990s. Anyway. What I'm going to do with this episode is spend my time with you, giving you a rundown of what the movie is about, as well as my review. And I will do that after this. Stick around. Monthly, monthly, monthly. It's Action Film Face-Off! Hello, I'm Jason the Weasel Skull Albrick, and I'd like to tell you about a podcast I do with my brother, Jared Albrick, the yard sale artist. Action Film Face-Off! Yes, thank you, Jared. Action Film Face-Off is a podcast where my brother and I, who are both military combat vets... Jason was a Navy SEAL! Jason was not a Navy SEAL. Jason was a military intelligence wing. But anyway, in each episode of Action Film Face-Off, we select two different action films. Some of them have Chuck Norris. Technically speaking, none of them have had Chuck Norris yet. But it could happen, because we use a randomizer set between 1970 and modern day to select our two films. So you'll always get two films, each from a different year. Our randomizer has spikes on it! We use a Google random number generator, so it does not have spikes on it. And we put the films into our video dome arena. It also has spikes. It does not have spikes. <laughs> but we discuss the films and score them through six different rounds of criteria. I score Bond films very high. Okay, that's true. But anyway, by the end of the episode, we crown one of the action films the champion of action film face-off. Next episode, Jason fights a bear. <laughs> Jason is not fighting a bear, but please give our show a listen. We're part of the Longbox Crusade Network of Shows. Pat Samson killed a man with a sword once. I can neither confirm nor deny that statement. But you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and most podcatchers under Longbox Crusade. Or you can subscribe to just our show by searching for Action Film Face-Off. Come see the blood fly! And that's Action Film Face-Off. We do, indeed, invite you to come and see The Blood Fly. I just said that. Drilling for oil at the North Pole. They plan for every emergency but one. You're going to blow up Santa Claus. Jacqueline Smith and Art Carney. You're going to ruin Christmas forever. You believe in Santa Claus the night they save Christmas. Thursday. The Night They Saved Christmas was directed by Jackie Cooper. Yes, Perry White from Superman the Movie. And stars Jacqueline Smith as Claudia Baldwin, who's the mother of three kids. She's married to oil rig foreman Michael Baldwin, who's played by Paul Lamatt. 
Uh, like I said, this originally aired on ABC on December 13th, 1984, but despite its family and kid appeal, the movie came in third place for the night, earning its 22 share with 14.2 million viewers. This is not surprising if you consider what it was up against. Two juggernaut 1980s Thursday night lineups. Over on CBS, there was Magnum P.I., Simon & Simon, and Knott's Landing. And as powerful as that lineup was, it was second to NBC's Thursday night comedy block, which would eventually be called must-see TV in the early 90s. We're talking The Cosby Show, Family Ties, Cheers, Night Court, and then Hill Street Blues. Although for accuracy's sake, uh, accuracy's sake I do have to note that uh, the ABC Thursday night movie was usually over by 10. 2020 was in the 10 p.m. slot, so... Uh, Knott's Landing and Hill Street Blues would not have been up against the night they saved Christmas, but I just thought I'd include them for histor history's sake. So, the premise of this movie is that Michael's Oil Company has been drilling in the Alaskan polar regions and has come up with an absolutely nothing in terms of oil. Said drilling requires that the company dynamite huge chunks of ice so that the drills do not freeze up or get stuck when doing their job. Michael is pretty sure that there is still oil near one site, which is Site A, while his boss, Murdoch, because there's got to be a character in an 80s-something or other named Murdoch, or Decker, or Devin, or just some of these names. Anyway, Murdoch wants him to go start drilling at Site B. I need to make sure that you know that these places are called Site A and Site B, because if you decide to watch this movie... You will hear Paul Lamatt and every single other character say side A and or site B about a thousand times. With just under a week to go before Christmas, Claudia flies to Cessna out to site A to pick up Michael and the two have a small argument about him wanting to stay on the site in Alaska instead of taking a job back in Los Angeles because he's, quote, not an office guy. Claudia notes that the kids are all pretty miserable, especially their youngest, CB, who's been acting out a lot at school and home. In fact, when they get home, they find out that CB has been in yet another fight at school, this time because another kid was telling everyone that Santa isn't real. Everyone's pretty much at an impasse over what to do, but it gets tabled because Michael's a little too focused on his job. The next day, after giving his oldest son snowmobile lessons... Michael heads into work and a little guy named Ed shows up at the office. Ed is played by Paul Williams, who you may know as the composer of The Rainbow Connection. Ed claims that he's Santa's head elf, and he talks to Michael about the company's plans to dynamite at Site B. The problem is that they are going to use so much dynamite to blast the area that they will destroy North Pole City, which is where Santa's workshop is. Michael thinks this is all one huge prank set up by a co-worker who's known for his pranks, and that night he tells the family all about it and they laugh their asses off. Well, except for CB, who gets visibly upset that they all think that Santa isn't real either and storms out of the room. So this is about maybe the first 10 or 15 minutes of the movie, which means that it's kind of a slow exposition and setup. In fact, the way the movie opens, it's kind of like any other 80s movie. There's a bunch of ice explosions and dramatic music, but like every time one of the titles 
comes on the screen, there's sparkles and Christmas chimes. It gives us enough of the premise, though, to let, to, the, to let us know that the company is blowing up a lot of stuff. It suggests that Michael, as the person in charge of the whole operation, is going to have some role in the titular saving of Christmas. Jacqueline Smith, at this point, is a few years removed from her role on Charlie's Angels, but she's still giving us independent equal woman of the 80s. We see her flying a plane. We see her asserting herself with regard to Michael's job. And that's really not too far off for this decade. The 80s was characterized by the changing dynamic within a lot of homes where you had more and more two-income families. You also had more and more divorces, and I can imagine that the disparity between one person's job and their role at home was on the list of the reasons why. And you get the sense that that's where they are in their marriage. She's tired of having their lives interrupted by his job, and the kids need a more normal life in a normal town and at a normal school. So that sets up our conflict, and as another day goes by, Ed shows up again. This time, he talks to Claudia and the kids and offers to give them a ride to North Pole City. Somehow convinced to drive across several miles of frozen Alaska landscape within a Humvee piloted by an elf, Claudia and the kids go there, and they soon find out that, yes... North Pole City is real. Santa is real. And the drilling at Site B is a real threat to Christmas. By the way, Paul Williams is pretty good in his role here as Ed. He does come off a little creepy at times, but he's also got the job of constantly having to explain the technology that Santa uses. That is, when Santa isn't explaining North Pole technology like he's Q in a James Bond movie. But North Pole City and Santa's workshop looked exactly like you would picture them. The movie's taking stuff from other Christmas classics, like the Rankin-Bass Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, for instance. And it creates a place of gingerbread, gumdrops, and candy canes where elves work and sing, despite the pressures to get everything done by Christmas, and they manage to love what they do. Santa is played by Art Carney, whose most famous role is, of course, as Ed Norton in The Honeymooners. He is joined by another television veteran, June Lockhart. She played the mom on Lassie, and she's his Mrs. Claus. The kids are pretty easily convinced that this is all real, but it takes Santa bringing up something that Claudia never told anybody about from when she was a little girl for her to actually believe that he's who he says he is. Now, once that's done, Santa tells her that the oil really is at Site A, but Michael is just a little bit off the mark. He even gives her a map to take back with her. The family then gets dropped off back home, and it's where I have to point out how much of its time this movie is. So, this is 1984. It's post-Star Wars. It's science fiction and action movies and adventure movies, especially ones featuring kids, are getting more and more popular. Using the magic of Christmas to explain how Santa was able to do everything he supposedly does isn't going to cut it in this day and age, so the writers have Santa do all of the explaining that I mentioned earlier. How does he get all the gifts in time? There's a device that slows time down. How does he carry all those presents? They have hot air balloon-looking satellites that they launch into the air at particular points across the globe, and they're often mistaken for UFOs. How can the sleigh go that fast? 
Here's all the rocket-powered warp speed features on it. Even the toy of the year, PAL, is a robot. In fact, I recognize the toy when they rolled out PAL. Uh, it is a toy that was called the Omnibot. It was made by Tomy. From just beyond your imagination comes Omnibot, the fully programmable robot with a memory. Omnibot, he walks, he talks. Hi, cutie. Amaze your friends. Wow! Intense! Refreshments, Earth-type snacks. Impress your teacher, impress your girlfriend. Omnibot, there's romance. Take my heart. He's the lean, mean, pop and breakin' music machine. Yes, it's Omnibot, the fully programmable robot, available now in your neighborhood. You from Tommy. The Omnibot was like, it wasn't very big. It wasn't very high. So what they do is they like mounted it on like a another set of legs or another pedestal or something to make it taller. So it came up to about maybe three and a half, four feet, as opposed to maybe like, you know, a foot and a half or so that it was in real life. Uh, you could you could see images of the Omnibot on the show notes. Uh, it's, you know, in, in various uh, old Sears catalogs and things like that. There were a lot of robot toys like that in the mid, in the early to mid eighties, by the way, I think there were my first robot and, and some other things. And I can imagine that those are the type of things that if you got it, and I don't think I knew anybody who actually owned any of those, but if you got that, that was one of those toys that probably cost a decent amount of money that you played with maybe past December 27th. And your parents kind of, after a while, lamented the fact that they just pissed their money away. Anyway. This tech, the tech explaining, it kind of takes away from what could have been a fun portrayal of Santa. Because instead of being jolly old Saint Nick, you know, even though Art Carney is kind of funny at times, Carney plays him like all business and pretty straightforward. Like, we got to get the job done, you know? And he doesn't bring the charm that like Edmund Gwen does in like Miracle on 34th Street, for instance. June Lockhart, to her credit, plays a great Mrs. Claus. Because she's got experience playing TV moms, so she brings that experience with her. They get back home, and when they get back home from North Pole City, nobody believes any of this, even though they've been missing for quite a while and people have actually been looking for them. Murdoch, who is at the house, claims that Gaylord, and I want to say Gaylord's a competitor? I, I, I might have missed that because I was you know, wrapping my head around all the tech, but I think he's a competitor and he, he, he comes up with the scenario. He's like, Gaylord obviously drugged you. And this is all the hallucination you had. And Michael buys into that. And even I would call bullshit in that moment. Cause a corporation drugging this woman and her three kids is about as far fetched as meeting actual Santa Claus. But the conflict between Michael and Murdoch over drilling at Site B instead of Site A, I'm going to tell you, keeps saying Site B and Site A. This all continues, and it seems like North Pole City is headed for destruction because Murdoch insists that they pull the resources from Site A and drill at Site B. So it all seems hopeless. And the next morning, the two older kids do what older kids in 80s movies like these always do, they take matters into their own hands so they can save the day. They hop on a snowmobile and they do their best to follow the map across the ice to where they remember North Pole City being. CB, who is stuck at home, 
is all upset and tells Michael all about what the two kids did, and he and Claudia start a frantic search with Claudia piloting the Cessna to the same place and finding the kids. You know, it's good that we saw Claudia piloting that Cessna at the opening of the movie, and earlier in the movie, Michael was giving the older the older son Snowball Bill lessons. It's, it's almost like we needed to plausibility in our thing of like, well, how could they, how do those kids know how to activate a snowmobile and stuff? Yeah. Good job there, writers. Anyway, she finds the kids. They're kind of lost though. It's a snow blind type of blizzard scenario, but they are saved by Santa's people and brought to the workshop again. And then there's a song there that's sung by the elves, but I honestly, I fast forwarded through it. So, what we have now is a race against time. Will Claudia and the kids be safe from danger? Will North Pole City get blasted? Will CB's constant whining and crying be enough to convince Michael to stop the blasting at Site B? Seriously, the kid angry cries his way through this entire movie. But it does work, especially when Michael, who is completely at his wit's end, and man, Paula Matt does exasperation so well. I mean, he did it really well at American Graffiti. He does it really well here. So anyway, Michael finally realizes that he's never there for his kids. He needs to be a better father because he never listens to his kids. And he finally listens to his kids and right at that point, a call comes in and oil has been struck at site A. Because you see, despite Murdoch's orders to not drill at site A, Michael just knew there was oil there. And he went behind his boss's back, which is probably a fireable offense, to be completely honest. But Michael is so excited and he relays the order to stop the blasting at site B. The blasting at Site B is stopped literally at the last second as a worker on a snowman wheel drives up really fast to the demolition team ordering to stop the blasting right before they pull the, push the plunger down and, and blow everything up. So North Pole City is safe from destruction. Santa drops Claudia and the kids off at the house. They've got a ton of gifts with them and they're reunited with Michael and CB. Murdoch shows up and he's pissed off that Michael went behind his back on site. A, he's probably going to fire him, but then when Michael tells him about all the oil, he's happy because, you know, he's happy. And he's like, oh, well, you're going to stay on and you're going to be my number one guy at site A. And Michael's like, no, I'm going back to LA permanently. And as Michael says this, they hear Santa's sleigh bells and they rush out to the porch to see him flying through the air. They have saved Christmas. And over the credits, that song that I fast forwarded through plays. And there's some really bad blue screen footage of Art Carney as Santa flying. The end. It's a trip, man. Um, look, my favorite movie for Christmas is A Christmas Story. Uh, that came out in 1983, a year before this did. But that, of course, takes place in the 40s. Uh, there's nothing supernatural about it. This has the unenviable task of placing Santa and his magic in the middle of the real world of 1984. And there are other movies that do that, you know, give Santa and the elves and all that thing, all those things, 
put them right there, juxtaposed against the modern world, so to speak. Um, I've seen Miracle on 34th Street a couple of times. It used to run on um, Channel 5 in New York like every single year. And I want to say both in like black and white and colorized versions back when those were like really popular in the 80s. Um, I haven't watched it in decades, but I do remember it having a certain amount of charm. Oh, Natalie Wood and Edmund Quinn. And I know it was remade by, I think, John Hughes and Chris Columbus was the director. And Mara Wilson, I want to say, played the little girl in a 90s remake of it. Um, and then, again, that's a charming movie. I haven't, like I said, I haven't watched it in a couple of decades, so I can't tell you whether or not it's it still holds up or is good. Um, another one that I can think of where you have like Santa and the Magic of Christmas juxtaposed against the very real world would be Elf starring Will Ferrell. I've only seen that once. Um, I enjoyed it. But honestly, like, and, and it gets that kind of contrast and tone right and there's a lot of whimsy to it. But I can, I don't know, I don't know how many times I would be able to sit through Elf if I would be able to sit through it on a annual basis. I have friends who watch it like all the time at Christmas, which like, yeah, do your thing. I'm never going to crap on somebody's Christmas movie choice. So, you know, do your thing. But Elf, Elf does a really good job of like, okay, like here's corporate America versus the magic of Christmas in the North Pole, etc. This, God, this is the most 80s Christmas movie there is. Next to maybe that Salkine produced Santa Claus, the movie starring Dudley Moore, and I think Jenny Lewis from Rilo Kiley is in it. I saw that one in the theater, and I'm going to have to do that in a future uh, year episode because I haven't seen that one since 1985, and I remember it being like, again, kind of like this, odd. You know, anyway. With all the attention paid to explaining the computer age technology in The Night They Saved Christmas, and all the arguments over Site A versus Site B... I'm actually surprised Christmas actually got saved because they they seriously I'm like amazed they got they got it all in time because they were just yelling at each other the entire time or debating these things or explaining these things. This isn't a classic in the same vein of a Christmas story. It's a Wonderful Life, which is not a movie I do not like at all. Uh, a Mere Home Thirty Four Street Elf. You know, it's not it's not up in that upper echelon of Die Hard. You know, uh, Christmas movies. It's an artifact, really. But hey, a TV movie in 1984 was not made for perpetuity. I don't think that ABC or Jackie Cooper or Jacqueline Smith or Art Carney or anybody else who was involved with the production of The Night They Saved Christmas thought that somebody was going to be discussing it 40 years later on a podcast or that it was going to be even run on television in any form 40 years later. I figured maybe it would, they would get a couple of years worth of repeats out of it, but, you know, they they gave it a shot, and it's not even to Charlie Brown Christmas or Rudolph that they're going to run every year anyway. And that's fine. Uh, I would check it out if you're interested in seeing just this kind of curiosity. It's, like I said, it's, it's, a, it's only about an hour and a half. It's two hours hour and 45, two hours with commercials. Um, you can find it on YouTube. You can find it on Tubi. Uh, you might even be able to rent it or something on Amazon ad free. 
It would be fun, and I didn't didn't find this on YouTube. It looked like somebody had cut the commercials out. It would have been fun to find somebody's taped copy from 1984 with 1984 Christmas commercials in it. But that's because I'm the type of nerd who likes to look up old commercials on YouTube. You know, and I don't need to see the umpteenth repeat of Oz the Ozempic commercial or somebody's not happy to get Alexis or the Target ad about Christmas or something. But yeah, that's my Christmas episode for this year. Check out the blog for for at least uh, one or one or two posts. I, I did recently do one about my favorite things, not my actual favorite things, but the song, My Favorite Things. And at some point between now and Christmas Day, I do plan on putting one up about random toys and Christmas gifts pass. And I do plan on doing a New Year's Eve post as well. Then I will be back in January for episode 150. That'll be a follow-up to a previous episode. I'm going to revisit my whole America, its people, its culture, etc. series from the summer of 2022 by looking at more travelogues and profiles of ordinary Americans, especially two books that are sequels and companions to Peter and Barbara Jenkins' books, A Walk Across America and The Walk West. Until then, um, feel free to send me feedback, leave comments, etc. about the night they say Christmas or anything else. And I hope you all have a happy, healthy, and safe holiday season. Thank you very much for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.